0: Well, um, obviously, some of the ladies went with us last week. So, just as a reminder for those who were here, but for you who weren't, last week we began to see, as we were in the last bit of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, that the Spirit, through Peter, was wanting to introduce this principle to these believers. That uh, Peter was writing to in AD 65, who were in Asia Minor, who were going through various trials and sufferings and difficulties. And that principle was that he wanted them to follow Christ in the midst of their suffering. He wanted them to be disciples of Jesus Christ and thus fulfill what Jesus said in the Gospels that if we were going to be his disciples, we should deny ourselves daily pick up our cross, and follow him. And so we saw last week that Peter wanted to bring out three principles that were to encourage these believers to follow Jesus in these difficult times. He first of all wanted to get them off to a good start by them having a confidence in the sovereignty of God, being able to give an answer when an answer was required from an unbeliever, and also to have a good conscience. The second thing we saw was that he wanted them to focus on the right thing when they were going through their suffering, that it was of benefit for them to suffer for doing what was good. And then thirdly, we saw that he wanted them to be realistic about their suffering, that their suffering was likely to be a lifelong thing and that also they were likely to be persecuted as well. That's what he was doing last week. Now, that principle of following Jesus in our suffering is carried over into the rest of the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. And what we're going to see this week is that in the first half of our text, Peter is wanting to teach us about how we can serve each other when we're following Christ in our suffering. And then in the second half, we're going to see him bring out this reality of how we are to persevere in following Christ in the midst of our suffering. That's what he's going to do this week. So let's let's get into our text and see what he says. Now, Peter introduces this text for us in verses 5, 6, and the beginning of verse 7 by, by bringing out this spiritual reality that he wants us to have in our mind as we go through this text. He says in verse 5, They will give an account to him, Who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this is obviously a follow on from what he was saying in verse 4 last week when we saw that there were unbelievers persecuting these people that Peter was writing to by speaking evil of them. And they were speaking evil of them because these believers were not living the same life that they used to. And these unbelievers thought that they were strange or that they were odd. Because they weren't following them in the same flood of dissipation. Following them in the same pointless life. And so therefore they spoke evil of them or they blasphemed against them. And really the purpose of verse 5, brothers and sisters, is to say that these people that were persecuting these believers are not going to get away with what they're doing. That they're going to have to give an account for what they're doing in the future to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Speaking of that great white throne judgment that we spoke about, I think, in my third message in this series that's spoken about in Revelation 20, when the whole of mankind who's ever existed will have to stand before God the Father and give an account of their lives, whether they're alive at that time or whether they've been dead, they will have to stand before him. And this verse really brings out this reality, brothers and sisters, that there's nothing that occurs in this world that escapes God. Everything is visible to him. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow, that's a pretty sobering verse. Nothing that occurs in this world, brothers and sisters, escapes God. And so therefore, these unbelievers that thought that they were going to get away with their persecution would not. They would have to give an account in the future. He goes on in verse 6 to say, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, this verse, brothers and sisters, is a controversial verse. <laughs> like verse 19 last week in chapter 3, this verse has many different interpretations when you look at Bible commentaries and scholars. And there are four main interpretations of this verse. I don't have the time to go through them today, to go through their merits or they, their demerits. But the key to, what, I think, understanding what this verse is teaching is to answer the question, who are the dead? That Peter's referring to in this verse. Now, I'd hasten to say to you that the dead in verse 6 are not those who've died in unbelief. Because if he was meaning those who died in unbelief here, what Peter would be teaching is that there could be a second chance to hear the gospel when people have passed away. And that's contrary to New Testament theology, because in Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 27, it says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So when people have died, they don't have a second chance to hear the gospel. It's only in this life. I'd also hasten to say to you that the dead in verse 6 is not a reference to mankind in general, who are spiritually dead in their sins and transgressions, because where Peter speaks of dead in verse 5, it's literal The physically dead. And for him to then go from physical to spiritual, it wouldn't really be consistent with what he's saying in this text. Now the dead in verse 6 could be Old Testament saints who died in faith. And this verse could be a reference to when Jesus went down to the place of the dead between his death and resurrection and preached the victory of the gospel to the Old Testament saints, and then took them with him up into heaven when he ascended. It could mean that. I personally think that if you go for that interpretation, you're reading too much into the text. My conviction about what this verse is saying, brothers and sisters, is that the dead are those people who've heard the gospel in their life, they have received it, and now they are physically dead. They have been, as it says they're judged according to men in the flesh. This reality that all men who are sinners have to die physically. But they live according to God in the spirit in that they've gone to be with Jesus now in heaven. Now Peter's bringing this up in verse 6 because he wants to encourage these believers. He's wanting to say to them, look, unlike unbelievers who die spiritually dead in their sins and transgressions, when you die you go to be with Jesus in heaven. You are not going to be part of the judgment onto condemnation in the future. And when you stand before God on that great day, he will look at you and see Jesus and say, you can spend the rest of eternity with me. This is what he's saying. And so therefore, for these unbelievers who thought that they had victory, listen, in their persecution, What Peter's saying here is that, yes, it might look like that, but in the future, Christian, you are going to have the victory when you spend the rest of eternity with God. This is what he's saying here. He then goes on in verse 7 to say, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, when he says the end of all things there, it's a reference to the end of this world as we know it. This fallen world that's riddled with sin. Now, of course, that's begun to happen in our hearts because the Spirit is setting us free from the power of sin, isn't he? But when it says the end of all things here, he's specifically meaning when Jesus comes back a second time to begin physically establishing the end of sin on this earth. And he says that it is at hand, which, is, which means that it can happen at any time. Jesus could come back in the next five minutes. He could come back in a hundred years' time. But in a sense, that doesn't really matter. It's at hand. It can happen at any time. But notice he says, but, at the beginning of verse 7. And this is interesting, because in verse 6, he's been encouraging them about their spiritual victory in the future, but he then uses this word, but. It's almost like he's trying to, give a negative connotation to the second coming of Christ. Why would he do that? Well, the reason he's doing that is because, brothers and sisters, there are two things that characterize the world as we get closer to the second coming of Christ. The first thing is that the world becomes more evil and becomes more morally degraded. And that's taught in 2 Timothy chapter... Three verses one to four and thirteen. I'm just going to read those to you. It says, But know this, that in the last times perilous, sorry, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in verse 13 he says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Teaching this reality that in the last days, the time period between Jesus' first coming and second coming is characterized by this increase of evil. But the second thing that characterizes the time between now and when Jesus comes back, is it because the world gets more evil, love becomes less. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, verse 12, when he says, speaking of the time before he comes back, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Speaking of this reality that as evil increases, love decreases. That's pretty sobering stuff. This is what he's wanting to bring out in this first half of verse 7. There's a reality, isn't there, brothers and sisters, that for us, the second coming of Christ is our great hope. Because when Jesus comes back, we will be like him. We will be perfect like him. We will be in the glorified state forever and ever. That makes me excited. But the reality is, is that the time between now and then is going to be difficult. It's going to be characterized by evil. It's going to be characterized by a lack of love. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And this is the spiritual reality that Peter's wanting to bring out in these first three verses. Now, having done that, what he's going to do for the rest of our text is he's going to show that given this spiritual reality that things are going to get worse before they get better, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to follow Jesus Christ in that spiritual reality? And in the first half, from verses 7 to 11, he's going to show us how we are called to serve each other as we follow Jesus in our suffering to glorify God. And I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now in those verses, there are three things that Peter brings out that he wants us to serve each other in. The first thing is prayer. The second thing is love. And the third thing is ministering the gift that we've been given by God. And I'm going to deal with each one individually. So let's talk about prayer first which is in verse 7, where he says, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And the idea that Peter's trying to get out here is that, look, given the fact that it's going to get worse before it gets better, in your prayers, I want you to be self-controlled, which is what being serious means, and I want you to be careful, which is what watchful means, that you do not fall into the same pattern of the world. That you don't go down the same path of getting evil and getting less loving. That's what he wants them to pray about. He doesn't want them to just pray that for themselves, but he wants them to pray that not only for themselves, but for their spouses, their children, for their brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking the same thing to us. That we're called to pray this that we're called to pray for each other, not only in this church, but in all the other churches in Norwich and in all the other churches in the UK and the rest of the world. Paul brings this out in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, where he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Confirming that when we are dealing with evil times, in Ephesians 6 he's talking about the devil, but in general, when we're dealing with evil times, we must pray for each other. That we don't go the pattern of the world. Why is that? Well, brothers and sisters, it's because we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be the salt of the earth. We're called to live a different life so that people can look at our lives and say, hey, Why is that guy different? And give you an opportunity to speak to that person about Jesus. This is why he's calling them to this. Now, what God wants to say to us today, specifically about prayer, and praying for other people, is that we are often poor at this. And we're poor at it because, listen, in the Western society, we live in an individualistic society where it's all about us. And that's infiltrated into the church so that now in the Western world you have an individualistic Christianity and the church is added on to your individualistic Christianity. And I would say that this is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, that the prayer meeting in this church, and possibly in other churches, is poorly attended. Because we find it weird to pray for other people. We find it odd, because we're too focused on I, me. And this is not what God wants. In the apostolic era, when Peter wrote this letter, it was the other way around. Concern for brothers and sisters in Christ was paramount, and your individual growth in Jesus, people left to the Lord. They left it to his sovereignty that he would grow them. And that's what God wants to reestablish in me, in you, in this church, and in all the churches in the Western world. He wants us to pray for each other. Now, I don't have a seven-point plan for you this morning to pray more for other people. Because the truth is, is that when you look at the scriptures and you look at the commands about prayer, what you see is the authors say, look, just do it. Just get on and do it. So I'm going to say the same to you. Just do it. Pray not only for yourselves, but for other people. Now, I can guarantee you that when you start doing this, it won't be easy. Because as soon as you start praying for other people, the devil comes up against you, your flesh comes up against you, and the world comes up against you. But listen to me, brother and sister, you have a great hope in you. You have the spirit of the living God in you, who is able to give you the strength and the power to overcome that difficulty and pray for other people, that God may be glorified, that people may see that God is able to intervene into our lives and change things because he listens to our prayers. So therefore, brothers and sisters, let us do that. Now, some of you in here might be saying, Adam, I'm just too busy to pray for other people. Well, let me give you an example from church history that hopefully will change your attitude. I think I'm right in saying this, that John and Charles Wesley's mother had so many children and she was so busy in her house that she actually had to put a tea towel over her face so that she could pray. So that when she didn't see her kids coming up to her. Man, that is some real commitment to prayer there. In the presence of busy times. And that is what God wants our hearts to be like. Because if our hearts are like that, things will change. In this country and in the church. And that's what I want and I'm sure that's what you want. Now, I did say there was going to be some heavy things in this message, so... We'll continue. (laughs) So, the second thing that he brings up that he wants us to do to serve each other as we follow Christ in our suffering to glorify God is in verses 8 and 9, and that is that we are called to love one another. And notice in verse 8, the motivation to love is that love will cover a multitude of sins. And what Peter's referring to here is what he was talking about back in chapter 3. That what was happening in these churches that he was writing to is that because people were suffering, their sin was being exposed in their heart. And that because of that, some of that sin was, you could say, being transposed onto people in the church. It was affecting other people relationally. And so what Peter was calling them to do was in that situation if they were being sinned against, he was calling these brothers and sisters to love that person that was sinning against them so that that love would cover a multitude of their sins so that that person could deal with that sin, repent of it and change and grow. And this is what he's referring to here again. He says in verse 9 an example of how we can do that. He says he wants us to be hospitable to one another without grumbling, which is this idea of having people around your house, sharing with them, and when it says without grumbling, it's this idea of not having anything in your heart against that person that's unsaid. And this is a fantastic example of love covering a multitude of, si- of sins, because what do we do, brothers, brothers and sisters, when someone sins against us in the church? You're like, okay, I've had enough of that person. I'm going to draw back. And I have to say, this is a particular problem for English Christians. Because in our genes, we are reserved. So when someone sins against us, we don't say anything. And we go to our houses and we spend six months to a year there without saying anything. We think it's going to get better, but it doesn't and it gets worse. And Peter's saying, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be hospitable to that person that's sinning against you because that's often where reconciliation will take place, in the home, through conversations. It's also where the church will be kept strong. Because listen, if you are fellowshipping with each other in your homes, the devil cannot get you into a corner and keep you there. Notice he says, at the beginning of verse 8 that he wants them to do this above all things showing that this love that he wants them to have for each other it must be a priority and why is that? well because in John 13 it says that when we love each other people will know that we are believers in Jesus Christ they will know that Jesus came to the world to die for their sins that is why it is of profound importance that we love each other even when we don't feel like doing it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us glorify God in loving one another because we acknowledge that his view of relationships is greater than ours and the world's. Now, the third thing, in verse 10 and 11, is that he wants them to minister to each other the gift that they've been given. Can you see that in verse 10? And what Peter's bringing out there is this reality that when we are born again, when the Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts, we are given a supernatural ability by God to bless the church. So that his love can be shown. It speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, where it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. You've been given a gift, not for yourselves, but for other people. And that is why he says in verse 10, that we are called to minister it to one one another. Now, I don't have the time today to go through each individual gift and what uh, that might look like in the church. If you want a good teaching on that, I'd encourage you to listen to John's teaching online about the works of the Spirit. And there's a good chart on our website which lists all of the gifts and goes through all of their references and what that might look like. Have a look at that. But what he does allude to in verse 11 is that these gifts possibly can be divided into two groups, that there are gifts of speaking and there are gifts of ministering or serving. I don't personally think we can be that dogmatic about those two groups. But what we can absolutely be dogmatic about is it's God who brings forth that gift. You have, as it says there in verse 11, let him, him who has this gift of speaking, let him speak as if it's the oracles of God, as if it's God that's speaking through him. And then that person who ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. It's God that gives you that gift and enables you to walk in that gift. Just remember that, guys. But what I do want to turn back to is verse 10, because there's a couple of things in there that I do believe the Lord wants to speak to us about. And it's firstly on that word received. Can you see that there? Now, the interesting thing about this word is the way that it's written in Greek. What it means in Greek is literally what it says there. It's this idea of receiving this gift and you take it. But the way it's written in Greek is it's written as if you received it in the past and you had an active involvement in receiving it. Now what that doesn't mean is that it's a reference to when you were born again. Because listen, when we're born again and we're praying to be saved, we don't ask for a specific gift, do we? My conviction about what this is saying is that, listen, when you're born again, you receive a gift and God will bring forth that gift in your life as you serve in the church. But there will come a point, listen, where you will have to actively receive that gift or acknowledge that you have received it so that you can minister appropriately in it. Let me give you an example from my life. Over the last 12 years, I don't know why, But God has enabled me and given me the ability to teach the Bible. I didn't ask for that gift. God just gave it to me. And so he's given me more opportunities over the years so that in the next two or three weeks, I would have finished teaching my first book on a Sunday morning, all the way through. How I've done that, I don't know. It's the Lord that's done it in me. But what God is calling me to do now is that I must actively receive the fact that I have that gift so that I can minister it in the future more appropriately. Because, listen, if I don't do that, then in my flesh I might shirk away from it. I'm the type of guy that doesn't really want the limelight. I don't want to be up here doing this, really. But God has called me to do it. God has given me that ability. And it's the same, listen, for all of you. All of you have got a gift within your hearts that God has given you. And as God brings that gift out, you will have to acknowledge it at some point, that you have a specific gift so that you can minister it appropriately. But notice, he then says in verse 10, that once we've received this gift and we minister it to one another, we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Which means that you are a good manager or you're a good distributor, of variations of grace that God has given to each person speaking of this reality that when you're given a gift it's a a part of the varied grace that God gives and that's confirmed by Paul in Romans 12 when he speaks about the same thing but it's God's grace listen that he's given you that gift it's his unmerited favour we don't deserve the gifts that we have We don't merit them. And because of that, that is why we must be good stewards of it. Because listen, brothers and sisters, you can be a bad steward of the gift that you've been given. And there are two ways that you can be a bad steward. The first way is if you overemphasize that gift to the point where it's not about God anymore, but it's about you. And you start, in a sense, ministering in it in the flesh. But the second way that you can be a bad steward is if you shirk away from it. No, I don't want anything to do with that. And you ignore the gift that you have been given. Maybe some of you in here have been to churches that overemphasize the gifts. Maybe you've been to churches that underemphasize the gifts. And I want to encourage you that what we aim for in this church is a balanced view of the gifts. We might not get it right all the time, but that's what we're praying towards. But listen, if you want to walk in the gift that God has given you, I've just got one simple piece of advice. Just serve. Serve God in the church that he's called you to. And when you do that, God will bring forth the gift that he's put in your heart and will use you in a fruitful way. So therefore, let us do that, brothers and sisters. Let us glorify God that he has given these supernatural gifts For the benefit and the extension of his kingdom. Now, he finishes this section at the end of verse 11 by stating that when we do these three things, when we pray, when we love, when we minister the gift that we have, we glorify God. Hallelujah. We acknowledge him for who he is, and it's through Jesus Christ. Speaking of the fact that it's the Spirit that brings it forth. But we are called to be obedient to the Spirit's leading, an example of the beautiful thing in the Bible of God in sovereign control and man's free will. And that then he brings forth the reason why we're called to do this. And it's to show that God has the glory and dominion forever and ever. So that as the world gets worse, we are different and we acknowledge that God is glorious. That he has dominion over all things. So that people will look at us and go, wow, the world is falling apart, but that guy seems to be joyous. Why is that? Well, it's because of Jesus. And that people will come into the kingdom of God. That's what God wants to do, brothers and sisters. You are called to live a life that glorifies God. And if you want to do that, You better start praying, you better start loving, and you better start ministering the gift that God has given you. Amen. Now as we go into the second half of the text from verse 12 onwards, what Peter's now going to do is he's going to give us teaching about how we are to persevere in following Christ in our suffering. And although this is applicable to all Christians, I do believe that there is, that when Peter wrote this, he had something specific in mind. And it was specifically written for believers who feel lonely in their suffering. Because let's face it, brothers and sisters, when we go through tough times, it's great when brothers and sisters support us. But we still have to go home, we still have to spend time on our own. And when we're in that place, I know we're not alone because God's with us, but we can feel quite lonely. And it's those people specifically that Peter is wanting to speak to through this last bit in our message today. Because he wants to encourage them that when they feel lonely, when they feel like giving up in their suffering, to keep going, to keep persevering, because God is going to do a good work in their life so let's see what he says in this bit now he brings three things up, I keep using the number three in this series but I guess it is the the number of completion isn't it the trinity yeah so anyway John's just rebuking me there but there are three things in this section that Peter brings up, the first one is in verses 12 and 13 where he says beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So the first thing that Peter's wanting to bring up here is that he wants these believers to not be surprised by their suffering. He doesn't want them to think it a strange thing that they're going through this difficult time and that they will go through this difficult time in the future. But what he wants them to do is he wants them to rejoice because of the fact that they're suffering, because they are partaking of Christ's sufferings. And so this is the first doctrinal, step, doctrinal thing that Peter brings up in this section, that we are called to partake or share... In the sufferings of Christ. Now that shouldn't surprise us because, brothers and sisters, when Jesus came to the earth, the perfect God man, and he preached the gospel of repentance and faith, what response did he get from the majority of people? Now, I don't want anything to do with you. We think you're a liar, we think you're a blasphemer, we think that you are evil. That was the majority response that he got. And so we too, when we as born again believers preach the gospel, we should expect to go through the same thing. We should expect to share in the sufferings that Christ went through. When he battled with sin, we should expect to battle with sin and suffer. When he suffered at the hands of being in the sinful world we should expect to suffer at the hands of being in the sinful world when he suffered at the hands of sinful men both verbally and physically we should expect that as well now the reason why brothers and sisters we are called to share in the Christ's sufferings is brought out through the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verses 7 to 10. I'm just going to read that to you. There, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. We are hard pressed, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So, there's the reason why we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ. It's so that Jesus can be manifested in our lives. To us, we can see him growing in our hearts. To other believers, they can see him growing in us. And to unbelievers, it's to show him. This is why we're called to share in the sufferings that he went through. And the ultimate benefit of that, brothers and sisters, is that as it says in Romans 8:17, if we choose to suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with him. And that is why Peter says here that you rejoice to the extent you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, when Jesus comes back, you may also be glad with exceeding joy because you are glorified with him. Hallelujah. So believe that, that brothers and sisters, suffering is part of your life. You are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, to manifest Jesus, that you may be glorified in the future. And this is therefore the first thing that Peter's bringing up. He's bringing up to these believers. He's saying, listen, persevere in your suffering, because you are being prepared for glory. When there'll be no more problems at all, whatsoever, anymore you're being prepared to be with Jesus forever. Therefore, persevere. The second thing he brings up is in verse 14, where he says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, the first thing I want you to notice there, brothers and sisters, is... there's a link between persecution or being reproached for the name of Christ and being born again. Those two things go together. This is what Peter is teaching here, that those who are born again, who have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon them, which means that the spirit is with you and will not leave you. That's what that word rests means. If you have that spirit within you, you should expect to be reproached for the name of Jesus Christ. There's a link there. But listen, even though that's the case, he says if you are reproached for the name of Christ, which means if you are spoken evil of, if you're spoken in a way where you've done something that you haven't because of Jesus, you are blessed. And the content of that blessing is in the second half of verse 14, where he says, on their part... He is blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. And what that means is is that because you have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you, you can respond to your persecution and suffering in the same way that Jesus did. You don't have to revile because you're being reviled. You don't have to threaten because you're suffering because the spirit of God is in you. And therefore in doing that, you glorify God. Because like Jesus when he committed himself to the one who is able to take care of him and judge his persecutors, we do the same. And that brings glory to God. And so therefore, the second thing that Peter wants to say to these believers is, look, persevere in your suffering because God is going to be glorified through that perseverance. God is going to be spoken highly of through that perseverance in your suffering. Even though it may come across that on the believer's part God is blasphemed, He's glorified because of you. Therefore, keep going. Keep persevering in that suffering. Now, the last thing He brings up is in verses 15 to 18. Where he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Here comes the sobering part. In the first two verses of this third thing, in verses 15 and 16, Peter basically makes a compar- comparison. He says, look, I don't want you to suffer as an unbeliever, really. I don't want you to suffer as a murderer, or a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Don't be embroiled in those things. But what I want you to do is if you suffer as a Christian, which means suffering for doing what is good... I don't want you to be ashamed of that, but I want you to glorify God. I want you to praise him. I want you to rejoice in him. I want you to exalt him because, in verse 17, it says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And so here we have the third thing that Peter's saying. He's saying, I want you to persevere in your suffering because God is going to use your suffering to judge sin in your life. Paul speaks about a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 11.32 when he talks about the sin of some of the believers in that church with regard to communion. And he says, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so the spiritual reality that the Spirit's bringing forth Peter and Paul in these verses is that what God sometimes does in our life is he uses suffering to judge our sin. He uses suffering to discipline us or chasten us. He uses suffering to get our attention to maybe something that we're not aware of. It might be in the form that, you know, you've been sinning in a particular thing for a long time. You've not repented of it. You've become hard-hearted. And God may, in his grace... Use suffering to get your attention so that that particular issue can be dealt with in your life. That it can be brought to the forefront of your heart so that you can repent and be restored. Now, that process of suffering when it comes to the judgment of our sin is not an enjoyable experience. When we're disciplined and chastened by God, it's not enjoyable as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. That is why it says in verse 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved. What that verse doesn't mean is that somehow God finds it difficult to save people, but it's speaking of the reality that when he judges our sin and disciplines us, it's very difficult for us. But what happens at the end of that season comes fruit, the peaceable fruit of Righteousness. So he's saying to them here, look, some of you may be suffering because of sin in your life. And therefore, if that's the case, I want you to persevere in your suffering because God's going to bring forth a good work that he's going to deal with that sin so that you can grow in Jesus and become more fruitful. So we've seen in this second section, brothers and sisters, three things that God wants us to persevere in as we suffer. He wants us to know that he's going to use our suffering to prepare us for glory. He wants us to know that he's going to use our suffering to glorify himself. And he wants us to know that he's going to use our suffering to judge sin in our life. And so therefore, in verse 19, knowing those things, he says, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. As to a faithful creator. What he's saying there is look, given these three things that God is going to use suffering for, I want you to commit yourself to him. He's created you, he's faithful, he's saved you, and he's promised you that he who has started a good work in you will complete it unto the end. He is faithful, he will bring forth that work in your life. So, therefore, commit your souls to him. Now in finishing this message, I just want to address those in here or who might be listening online who don't know Jesus yet. And I just want to speak again from verse 17 and 18 and Peter asks two questions in there about people who don't know Jesus. He says, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And then in verse 18 he says, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And if you don't know Jesus in here, or if you don't know Jesus if you're listening online, I want to ask you those questions myself today. What will be the end of you if you don't obey the gospel of God? Where will you be? Where will you appear in the future on that judgment day? Will you be in heaven forever or will you be cast down to the lake of fire with Satan and his fallen angels? Peter doesn't give us the answer to these questions here. But I can give you the answer, knowing what the scripture says. That your end, if you don't obey the gospel of God, will be that you will be judged onto condemnation in the future forever. And you'll be separated from God forever. But, even though that's the case, the good news is, is that you don't have to have that end that I believe that you are listening to this message today because God wants to change your destination in the future. He wants you to know that you're a sinner. But he also wants you to know that all of your sin was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Hallelujah. And that if you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. You do have to acknowledge your sin before God, but if you simply, as a child, put your faith in God that he's died for your sins and he's risen again on the third day, you will be saved. And so therefore, in the future, even if you have a life of suffering now, you will live in glory forever. This life, listen, will be like a a vapor of air compared to eternity in the future. So therefore, what is stopping you from putting your faith in Christ? I would say there's nothing. So therefore, put your faith in him and get saved. Let's pray.